how many of you have ever had your caricature sketched by an amateur artist? You know, at a carnival or boardwalk or still have that picture hanging around someplace? Uh, they say that caricatures date all the way back to Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, if you don't know anything about caricatures, it's a, it's a sketch made of a person. And what it does is it accentuates a prominent trait of that individual. It exaggerates it. So if we're looking at a caricature of, uh, well, let's put one up here. Donald Trump, what do you see? Yeah, you see his bad hair, all right? Let's try another one. The Rock, okay? Dwayne Johnson, what do you see? You see bulging biceps. That's what's exaggerated. How about the President of the United States? Big ears, all right? Another one? Okay, you know Kiera Knightley, the, uh, the actress? What you see accentuated is her popsicle stick thinness, all right? One more. Jim Carrey, you see that big, silly, toothy grin of his. That's what a caricature artist picks up on. Now, let, let me give you one that, that you, know, you probably won't be able to answer what has been exaggerated by the artist because you've never seen this guy in real life. His name is James, and he's the author of the New Testament epistle that we've been studying the last three months at Christ Community Church. But do you know, if, if a caricature artist were, were to do a sketch of James... What that artist would exaggerate would be James's knees. His knees. That's right. According to the fourth century Roman historian Eusebius, there was a Christian tradition already in place that James prayed so much, spent so much time on his knees praying, that his knees had become as big as a camel's. So, this is what you'd see if James, that's what you'd see, okay, caricature of James. In fact, he had a nickname. They called him camel knees. Not making that up. They called him camel knees. I don't know if James saw that as a compliment or not. But today is the final installment in a 12-week series. We've been working our way through the epistle, New Testament epistle of James, a series called Faith That Makes a Difference. You know, I didn't do this in any of the other services, but I thought it would be appropriate to thank God for his word. Isn't this a great book? Well, yeah. So much practical stuff for our lives. In fact, I hope that you've gotten as much out of this series as those of us who have been teaching it have gotten out of our preparation, our study. And if you missed any of the, the sermons along the line, uh, along the way, the 12 sermons, I'd encourage you to go online, ccclife.org, download whatever you missed onto your, onto your iPhone or onto an iPod, and then listen to it sometime this summer. So you've got the, the complete series. Listen to it while you're on vacation or sitting on the beach or working in your backyard, whatever. Now, James does not conclude this epistle quietly. James goes out beating a drum, and he beats a drum for prayer. Uh, interestingly, a lot of the New Testament epistles written by others besides James, uh, they, they put prayer toward the end of their epistle, but nobody stresses it, nobody emphasizes it quite like James. In the closing passage we're going to look at today, you're going to see seven references to pray or prayed or praying or prayer. This is old camel knees telling us what, what he wants us to do. If you're a Christ follower, he wants you to engage in prayer. And we're going to look at four different kinds of prayer that James commends to us. So if you haven't taken your outline out yet, take it out, fill it in as you go along so you can look back on it afterwards and ask yourself, okay, which of these areas do I need to grow in? So four kinds of prayer. Uh, before we do that, before we start into those four kinds of prayer, I'm going to jump right in the middle, into the middle of today's passage. 
It's supposed to begin at verse 13 of James 5. I'm going to jump into the middle of verse 16 because we, we need to learn something about power in prayer before we talk about various kinds of prayer. Okay, don't, don't you want power when you, you pray? Don't you want to know that your prayers are making a difference, that they're changing things? Now, the skeptic would say, well, you know, prayers don't really change anything, but if it makes you feel good to pray, if you feel better, then you know, go ahead and do it, but it doesn't make a difference. Okay, James would have a contrary view to that. Uh, throughout the Scripture, we find that prayer can be powerful. Prayer invites God to intervene in our situations. But there are two qualifications that must be, be met in order for our prayers to be powerful. So I'm going to jump into the middle of verse 16 where James tells us what those two qualifications are. He says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being even as we are, but he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. The first line that I read to you, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. Uh, interestingly, in the original Greek text of this verse, the word order of that line, that sentence, is different. Now, in the Greek language, if you wanted to emphasize a word, you would stick that word at the beginning of the sentence. So guess what word James emphasizes in that sentence I just read to you? So we're powerful. So he puts it at the beginning. James writes literally in the Greek, powerful is the prayer of a righteous person. Now the English translators come along and they say, well, that sounds a little awkward in the English. So they reverse the order. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful, they say. Unfortunately, our English translations miss the emphasis that James wants to put on the word powerful. He wants you to pray with power. Would you like to pray with power? Okay. Now this is a participative service, okay? So those aren't just you know, rhetorical. Would you like to pray with power? Good. I hope at every one of our campuses you said, yes, I'd like to pray with, I'd like my prayers to make a difference. I'd like to know that they change things. Okay, two qualifications. First, James says, you need to be a righteous prayer. Okay, powerful, that first line in the middle of verse 16, powerful is the prayer of a righteous person. What does righteous mean? Does that mean sinless? Powerful is the prayer of a sinless person. I hope that's not what righteous means because my prayers are never going to be powerful and neither are yours because none of us is sinless. Now the word righteous in, in the Bible describes people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ and who are now striving to walk in obedience to him. So let, let's take that apart. Surrender their lives to Christ. Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you ever acknowledged Jesus to be the, the only Savior, the one who gave his life on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins? Okay, the penalty is death. You unplug from the giver of life and you die. That's the penalty for sins. Jesus took your penalty when he died upon the cross. Have you ever, ever surrendered your life to God, acknowledging Jesus as Savior, asking God to forgive your sins, giving God your sin, and taking Jesus' righteousness in exchange for it. This is an incredible exchange. I mean, stop and think about that. Jesus invites you to give him your sins, and what he gives you in exchange is his righteousness. Have you ever done that? 
And if you've done that, are you now walking in obedience to him? Has he become the, the king of your life? Are you becoming in practice the person that he, he made you to be the moment you surrendered your life to him? See, when you surrendered to him, he, he imputed his righteousness, credited his righteousness to your account. Are you living like that now? If you've surrendered to Christ and you're, you're striving to walk in obedience to him, your prayers are going to be powerful. If you've never surrendered to Christ and presently in your life you're, you're just not walking in obedience to him, then save your breath. You know, your prayers aren't going anywhere. They're wimpy, not going to accomplish anything. See, first characteristic qualification for powerful prayer is that the prayer is righteous, a righteous prayer. The second qualification, you must be an earnest prayer. And this is where James throws in the example of Elijah, verses 17 and 18. Now, Elijah was a superhero in the Judaism of James' day. In fact, you, you read the New Testament, and it refers to this Old Testament prophet, Elijah, 30 times. Elijah was a big deal. And, and most people, most of James' readers could recount stories that they'd heard from the Old Testament about Elijah's exploits, like the time he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the 450 wicked prophets of Baal up at the top of Mount Carmel. It's like showdown, you know, at the OK Corral. In fact, if you, if you go to Israel these days, you could take a bus on this circuitous ride all the way to the top of Mount Carmel, and you'll see a ginormous statue of Elijah at the top of it. He's a superhero in Jewish history. And one of the things he was known for was his powerful praying. Yeah, on, on, on one occasion, he was praying against the wickedness of the land. And so God brought a drought as punishment in response to Elijah's prayer. Three and a half years of drought, and then Elijah prays again, and the rain comes. How many of you have ever gotten results like that from your praying? You know, God stopping the rain for three and a half years. And, and so we're tempted to say, well, James, can you give us another example of powerful praying beside Elijah? Because, like, we're not in his league at all. I mean, this dude's a superhero. And James says, well... Not really. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a human being even as we are. James says, get Elijah off the superhero pedestal you put him on. The reason his prayers were powerful was not because he was a superhero, but because, look at the next line, he prayed, say it with me, earnestly. He prayed earnestly. That's why God heard his prayers and did something. I love the literal Greek here. It's he prayed with prayer. In, in Jewish circles, if you wanted to emphasize something, you would repeat it. So if you wanted to say God's really holy, you would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So here, here James wants to tell us that Elijah was a guy who knew, knew how to get down when he prayed. He prayed with prayer. So when Elijah started to pray, you could just hear the pitch of his voice raise, the intensity increase. I mean, he didn't pray for like 30 seconds cavalierly and then, then walk away. He, he could pray for 30 minutes. He could pray for three hours. Do you, do you ever get into it when you're praying? Is there ever earnestness in your praying that convinces God that you really mean business about what you're praying about? Did you know that the Bible teaches that God doesn't really take our prayers seriously when we pray them half-heartedly? The psalmist says again and again, cry out to the Lord, call out to the Lord. That's how he describes prayer. 
If we want our prayers to be powerful, to make a difference, we need to be righteous prayers and earnest prayers. I got a whole chapter in my book, Prayer Coach, on praying with passion. If you're wondering, how do I do it? Read that chapter. If you want to pray with power, you got to be a righteous prayer and an earnest prayer. You get it? Good. Four types of prayer. Okay, that's how to make sure you got power in your prayers. Now James is going to give us four kinds of prayer. If you're a Christ follower, you you might not be doing a great job in each of these four categories, but James wants you to grow. Okay, the first I'm going to call the singing prayer, and I want you to start at the beginning of today's text, verse 13. As I read it, follow along. James says, "Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy?" Well, let them sing songs of praise. Now stop there. Praying and singing go hand in hand in this verse. It doesn't matter if you're in trouble or, or on the other hand, you're having a good day. Express yourself to God in praying and in singing. As you sing worship to God, you, it's emotionally cathartic. As you sing worship to God, you bring a sense of God into your situation. You know, Augustine was a 5th century Christian leader who's credited with the saying that he who sings prays twice. I like that. You know, when, when, when you sing, you're, you're both singing worship to God, but you're also praying because singing is a variation on praying. He who sings prays twice. You want to double your prayer? Just sing some to God. It's pretty cool. Now, it's probably not cool to some of you guys. My observation as a guy observing guys is that men have a particularly hard time learning to pray. That's why I originally wrote Prayer Coach, more aimed at guys than at at women. But if there's one thing that intimidates us more than praying, especially praying out loud, it's singing. And so James says, guess what, brothers? I want you to do both. I want you to pray up a storm, and I want you to sing, okay? Yeah, we guys are saying, oh, not so sure, James. So let me give you four suggestions here that I hope will pick up your singing prayer life. And these are aimed especially at guys, even though I think they'll apply to both men and women. First, don't sell yourself short as a singer. Okay, don't sell yourself short as a singer. I went to Wrigley a couple weeks ago to watch the Cubs beat up the White Sox. It's just such a wonderful game. I love these Crosstown classics. And uh, so, I mean, everybody got in the act, piling up the runs. The Cubs won 8-3. to 8-3. to three. The Cubs pitcher hit a grand slam home run. You know, in fact, the bases were low to the pitcher. They sent a pitcher to the plate. I turned to my buddy. I brought a couple neighbors with me. And I said, it's going to be a grand slam. He hits the next pitch out of the park. My, my neighbor now thinks I'm a prophet, okay? <laughs> and I said, no, dude, lucky guess. Lucky guess. So it's coming into the ninth inning, top of the ninth. Sox have their last at-bats. It's 8-3. to three. Uh, The Sox have been doing nothing in terms of, of producing runs. So I know the game's almost over. But the storm clouds are coming into Wrigley. And if you've ever been to Wrigley with an approaching storm, you know it's a good idea to get out of there as soon as possible. You know it's going to be a torrential downpour, but there's no way I'm leaving, even though in, for all intent and purposes the game is over, there's no way I'm leaving until the final out. Because I'm going to stay there when thousands of fans break out into Go Cubs Go. Come on, there's got to be a few more Cubs fans. 
go Cubs, go. You got to sing. And you watch, you watch the stadium erupt in singing and every guy in the place is singing just like every guy saying that stupid, take me out to the ball game during the seventh inning stretch. Don't tell me guys can't sing. Because when we want to, we can bring it. All right, so don't sell yourself short as a singer. The second thing, I'd say by way of suggestion, just to ramp it up for you, you men, is remember the manly singers of Bible fame. Okay, it's not, it's not just ladies who, who do the singing. You got this Old Testament guy named David who was a warrior, who was a giant slayer, who was a king, who was the kind of guy we'd invite to speak at a men's breakfast at Christ Community Church. This dude wrote all sorts of songs. We call them psalms. We got a whole book of psalms, many of them attributed to David in the Old Testament. He would sing these songs of praise to God, accompanying himself on a harp. It was a Fender Rhodes, electric harp. <laughs> Some of you don't get that. Uh, he was a singer. He was a manly man. He was a singer. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament. As, as Paul carried the good news of Christ around the world, he, he was stoned, real stones, okay? He was, he was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He, he had to face down bandits, according to his New Testament letters. He, he was thrown in, you know, in prison again and again in the city of Philippi. He's thrown in prison for preaching about Jesus with his bud Silas. After they'd been whipped, their backs had been opened up, so they're sitting there in the jail at night, backs bleeding, feet in stocks, it's midnight, and what are Paul and Silas doing? What do you think? They're singing, they're rocking the jail with their praise to God. See, it, it is not manly to refrain from singing. It's not manly to refrain from singing. Real men sing. You say, I can't carry a tune in a bushel basket. Well, God doesn't care whether you're a tenor, a bass, a baritone, or a monotone. See, David says in Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord. If you could make a noise, make it, guys. And here, here's the deal. I'll cut with you, okay? When you come to Christ Community Church uh, for a weekend service, and you stand there while we're, we're singing... Okay, if you can watch a sporting event, like a Stanley Cup playoff, for example, if you can watch one of those and never move, never clap your hands, never go hawks, never jump out of your seat, then you're allowed to stand passively and never sing a word here, okay? But if you can give it up for the Cubs, the Bears, the Hawks, and you can't give it up for the God of the universe, then it's time you grow you know, it's time we grow. Yeah. And guys, you know, if you're not yet a Christ follower, you're welcome to stand here because I don't want you to be a hypocrite and sing stuff you don't really mean. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, let's get with it. Men can sing. There's, now, there's one more, one more suggestion I'd like to make for you guys, and that is uh, use some props to help you when you're singing on your own. Okay, it's one thing to sing at a weekend service. We got the band backing us up at each of our campuses. They make us all sound good. They play loud enough we don't have to hear our own voice, right? And there are words up on the screen so we can follow along. But what do you do when you're out walking through the woods or you're driving your truck to work or whatever and you don't have the band and you don't have the lyrics? 
couple of props I use. One is I download music, worship music, uh, onto my smartphone. You could put it on your, your iPod, and then you could listen to it while you work out or while you're driving on vacation and sing at the top of your lungs with Chris Tomlin or some other uh, contemporary composer as they, they and their band lead you in worship. The other thing I use by way of props is I, if I like a song, one of the songs we're singing at the weekend, you know, I'll print out the lyrics to that song or I'll print out the lyrics to a really great hymn like Great Is Thy Faithfulness or Holy, 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 and I'll put those, those printed cards into one of those cheapo photo albums that grandmas get to brag on their grandkids at Osco, you know, and I'll just fill it up with pages of lyrics so I can go anywhere and I got my little songbook with me. Guys, God wants you to sing. James wants you to become a singing prayer because when you sing, you pray twice. You get it? Good. Number two. Oh, by the way, we're going to sing one last worship song before we close today. So all of you guys who just say, said, got it, we'll see. Okay, we'll see. Guys are going to the bathroom right now. Yeah, I'm getting out of here. Come on. Number two. You got the singing prayer number two, the healing prayer. Go back to the text, verse 14. If anyone among you, is anyone among you sick, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. The healing prayer. A couple of weeks ago, I stopped by the house of a, a friend of mine. He's 20-something years old. He's a good athlete. He's been a, a ski instructor out in Colorado. Uh, a very bright young man. He's in his second year of med school right now. Loves God with all his heart. While he was a student at university, he was one of the leaders in the campus ministry. And he's sick. Yeah, the pain started in his lower spine. They thought it might be uh, the sort of arthritis that young adults can sometimes get. But they did further tests when the pain didn't go away, and didn't respond to medication, and they found that he's got cancer. He's got lymphoma in his lower three vertebrae. So I dropped by his house to pray for him. And Sue was with me and two other elder couples from Christ Community Church. And we were getting all ready to gather around Carl and pray for him. And his dad said, well, wait a second. I just want to reminisce about something here. Kind of a faith booster, if you would. But three years ago, we gathered in this same family room to pray for me, this dad said, who, by the way, is a doctor. And, and he said, I, I was sick. I had a tumor on my appendix that had burst and had, it had spilled over into my abdomen. I was in bad shape. And by the way, this, this doctor, this dad, eventually had to go through some real serious real ticklish surgery at a local hospital, and then, then he was sent to Baltimore for some follow-up chemotherapy, very specialized kind of chemotherapy. But before he went through the surgery, he called Sue and me to come by, to drop by, to pray for him. And so this dad's looking at his son, and he says, I just want you to know this prayer stuff works. It works. And then we prayed together. And that was a couple of weeks ago. I just got an email from Carl yesterday. He said, you know, the doctors are amazed at how good the chemo is working. And the night that we prayed for him, he was in so much pain, he couldn't sit down. He wasn't sleeping at all because of, uh, of his pain. We had to pray for him standing there. The pain's gone right now. Now, I, you say, well, did the prayer totally heal him? Well, it's too early to say that he's totally healed, but it sure looks like prayer launched the healing process. And, and if you're a skeptic, I suppose you could say, well, it wasn't prayer, it was chemo. You said he, he's going to chemo. 
Yeah, but I'd say, you know, God sometimes heals directly, and so no medical intervention is necessary. Sometimes I see God heal indirectly. He uses medicine, chemo, surgery, doctors, whatever. But make no mistake about it, God is still behind the healing. And if you, if you think differently, if you think differently, you might want to note how many times the medicine and whatnot doesn't work. Okay, so, so my God is a healer. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to look at the three steps to this healing prayer process that James lays out for us because you need to know that this is what we practice at Christ Community Church. So if you ever need it, this is how it works, okay? Step number one, the sick person contacts the elders. Step number one, it's in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. Uh, the elders of Christ Community Church are a team of spiritually mature volunteer leaders gathered from all four campuses, and these guys get involved in the nitty-gritty of people's problems at our church. So, so they intervene in situations where there's marital conflict or when there's a personal crisis, when there's a serious illness, and these people are powerful prayers. They know how to pray, but they will not pray for you unless you ask them to. See, this, this is not, they're not like a prayer posse riding around town looking for somebody to pray for. Yeah, let's impose ourselves on that person. Yeah, they will pray when you contact them and say, I'd like the elders to, to pray for me. How do you do that? Two ways. Uh, first way is the first weekend of, of uh, services at our church every month, the elders are the ones praying, the elders and their spouses, after the services at all four campuses. Okay, and there will be some other uh, staff and others sprinkled in. But anytime you're ill and you want the elders to pray for you, they're, they're available the first weekend of the month. You say, what if I'm too sick to get here? Or what if like the surgeries the next week and the first week of the month is several weeks out? Pick up the phone and call us. We'll send elders to your house. But we won't do it unless you contact us. Okay, why does God want you to contact the elders because he wants you to display some faith here. See, if you don't really believe that God has the power to heal you, you'll just sit tight and you won't contact the elders. If you believe that God wants to intervene, you'll, you'll give them a call. Second step, the elders then anoint the sick person with oil. You see that second half of verse 14? What is it uh, is up with the oil here? I mean, is this like cooking oil? Is this... Is this 10W40 motor oil? Is this fragrant bath oil? James doesn't say. The Bible isn't interested in what kind of oil it is. It's interested in the purpose of the oil. The purpose of the oil, the oil serves as a symbol here. It's not medicinal, it's, it's a symbol. It's just like when we take communion and you get a little piece of bread and you get a cup of juice that symbolize what? The body of Christ, the blood of Christ, who sacrificed his life on the cross to pay for your sins. Okay, it's a physical reminder of Jesus' death for you. Oil in the Bible is a symbol. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You know, when, when Jesus' ministry was inaugurated, he, he read the, the prophet Isaiah in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. He, he read this particular quote, and he applied it to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. God's Spirit has been poured out of me, Jesus said, like oil. 
And, and so oil becomes a symbol of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you come to the elders and we pray for you for healing, what we'll do is we'll take a little dab of oil and we'll wipe it on your forehead as a reminder, a physical reminder that the Holy Spirit, we're asking him to get involved and to heal you. If you, you get better, it's not because uh, we're such great prayers or because uh, the, the medicine in and of itself worked. It's because God intervened, God's Spirit. That's what the oil's all about. By the way, you could wipe it off when you go home. All right. So oil. Now, there's a third step to this whole thing. The elders then pray for the sick person in faith. You see that important phrase in faith in the opening line of verse 15? The prayer offered in faith. When the Christ Community Church elders pray for a person, they pray expectantly. They pray optimistically. They pray aggressively. They don't hem and haw. They don't wring their hands. They don't pray as if they really don't believe God's going to do anything, but, you know, we're called to pray, so let's pray. No. They pray in faith. Now, does that mean that God always heals the person they pray for? No. Because praying in faith means that in faith means that you believe certain things about God. Now, one of the things that you believe as you pray in faith is that God has the power to bring healing to this person. But the other thing you believe about God when you pray in faith is that God is sovereign and knows what's best, and that at times may withhold healing for reasons known only to Himself. And so you trust Him. We pray like crazy that God will make a person well. And if it doesn't happen, we say, God be praised. You know, you've got something else in mind. We don't know your mind on this. But God be praised. James' challenge to us is that we give the elders an opportunity. Give them the opportunity to pray the healing prayer. If you're seriously ill and you're wondering why God isn't, isn't making you better, maybe God is waiting for you to follow the instructions in his book. Maybe you've asked everybody but the elders. You've asked your family to pray for you or people at work are praying for you or your community group, but you've never followed the instructions here in James chapter 5, the healing prayer. Get the elders involved. Number three, the cleansing prayer. The cleansing prayer. Go back to verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So James makes a strong connection in these verses between sins and sickness. So let me ask you a question. We'll take a little poll here. I want you to respond at the regional campuses as well. Is sickness the result of sin in your life? Okay, how many of you say yes, sickness is the result of sin? Put your hand up. Come on. See the votes? All right. How many of you say no? Sickness is not the result of sin. Okay, a bunch more of you. How many of you say maybe? All of you. Okay, good. The maybes win. Because as you read the scripture, what, what you discover is that sometimes sickness is the result of sin. And sometimes sickness has nothing to do with sin in a person's life. Now, let me illustrate this with two incidents in the life of Jesus, his healing ministry, both from the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem for a religious festival, and he comes across a guy who's been lame. He's been paralyzed for 35 years, and Jesus heals him on the spot, makes him better. 
So so the guy strides off, and later on that day, or maybe the next day, uh, Scripture says that Jesus encounters him again and, and says, John 5, verse 14, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. In other words, that sickness that I healed you from was connected to some sin in your life. Don't go back there. Okay, change your ways or you're going to get sick again. Now, lest we think that's always the case, that sickness is always, you know, the result of sin, a different story is told several chapters later, John chapter 9. This time, Jesus heals a man who's been blind since birth. So his disciples, they're still remembering the lame man's story. They're wondering, who sinned? So they say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, God's going to do a miracle here. That's the bottom line here. It has nothing to do with this guy's sin. So sometimes sickness is the result of sin in our lives. Sometimes it isn't, which is why James encourages us. Listen now. James encourages us to examine our lives when we're sick to see if there's any sinful pattern going on there that, that God wants us to confess. God may be using sickness to get our attention so we'll confess our sins. I want to say that again. God may be using sickness to get our attention so that we'll confess our sins. That, that word confess, beginning of verse 16. It's an interesting word. The word confess in the Bible means liter- literally to agree with. To agree. Now, who do you think James wants you to agree with about your sin? God, right? He wants you to agree with God. What is it about your sin that he wants you to agree with God about? Well, probably several things. Like, how about the sinfulness of your sin, the wrongness of it? You know, what God wants to hear from you when you confess your sin is that you're, you're no longer making excuses for it. You're no longer minimizing it. Eh, this wasn't a really big deal. You're no longer blaming it on somebody else. You're no longer rationalizing it. Well, I did this because. You're just coming right out and you're you're saying to God, God, my angry outbursts, they're wrong. They're wrong. My my, my sexual immorality, okay, the porn I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, God, it's offensive to you. It's gross. You know, my love for other things, you know, Placing as my top priority sports or clothes or, or my love for these things is idolatry. That's what it is. I'm putting these things in place of you. Yeah. My habit of spending everything I earn on myself, it's, it's just plain selfish. See, whatever your sin, you, you, you agree with God that it's sinful. And and then you agree with God that the only thing that can take care of it is the blood of Christ offered on your behalf. That's where forgiveness comes from. You say, God, I agree with you that I can't get rid of this sin on my own. It takes Jesus, his death on the cross for me. I get it. I acknowledge that it cost you the life of your son so that I could be forgiven. It's agreeing with God finally that that the only way you're going to overcome this habit is with the, the help of the Holy Spirit. And you're saying, God, I agree. I need your help to break this pattern in my life. This is what it means to confess our sins. And once again, who do we confess to? Well, ultimately, we confess our sins to God. But in this passage, look at the opening line of verse 16. Because James surprises us. He makes the point that it's super beneficial to confess our sins to whom? 
each other. Why? What is the possible benefit of confessing your sins to somebody else? Well, remember the context. It's all about prayer. See, when I confess my sins to somebody else, I say, I'm really struggling in this area. I'm not doing too well. Would, would you pray for me is the next line out of my mouth. Would you pray for me? Now, I want to point out that when you ask someone to pray for you, it doesn't have to be a religious professional. This happens to be the text that Roman Catholics get the practice of confessing sin to a priest out of, but you don't see any mention of a priest here, do you? you know, don't confess your sin to a pastor. That's not what it says here. I mean, you could choose a pastor if you want, but you could choose a good friend who's a Christ follower. You could choose somebody in your, your community group. You know, you, you could, if you're married, you could go to your spouse. I, I had to do that this last week. It's a, it's a bit humbling, but to say, Sue, I'm really struggling in an area. You know, would you, would you just pray for me? If, if you're a middle school student, high school student, you want to blow your mom and dad away, just come to them sometime and say, Mom, Dad, I'm struggling with this, not doing so good with it. Would you pray for me? Oh, my goodness. There is nothing any Christ-following parent would rather hear from their kid than something like that. Of course they'll pray for you. It may be the elders that you go to, because this whole passage is about going to the elders for healing. One of the things the elders will ask you when you come and you're sick and you want prayer for healing, they'll say, by the way, is it possible that God's trying to get your attention with this sickness? Is there something that you, know, you just want to tell us about we could pray about? And you may need to say, well, yeah, I guess the reason I'm sick is because I'm run down. You know, my schedule's all out of whack. Or you might say, yeah, you know, maybe it's the bitterness in my life toward a certain person. I just can't seem to forget so, forgive so-and-so. Or maybe it's because I don't have control over where I'm going on the Internet. Or maybe it's this or that. And the elders will say, let's pray. And they'll pray for your physical healing and they'll pray for your spiritual healing that you would experience God's forgiveness and the breaking of this pattern of sin in your life. It may be an accountability partner. You know, I, I've been meeting with the same guy for... 10 years or so, every other week, we get together for an hour lunch, we share our struggles with each other, we confess our sins to each other, and we pray for each other. And if you guys are thinking, well, I don't want to do that groveling in front of somebody, it's not groveling. Dude, it's, it's liberating. You know, when I've met with my accountability partner and I put the cards on the table and he's prayed for me and he's asked God to forgive me and give me a sense of being guilt-free and uh, Holy Spirit of God help Jim now to overcome this in, in his life. And oh my goodness. This is why James says, I mean, look, look at the last line of verse 16. If we'll confess our sins to each other and pray for each other, we will be healed. And he's not just talking about physical healing here. When you get these sins off your chest and somebody else intervenes and prays for you, there's spiritual healing and emotional healing and oftentimes relational healing. That's what comes from the cleansing prayer. I love 1 John 1, 9, one of my favorite scriptures. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How long has it been since you prayed the cleansing prayer? I mean, has it been 48 hours, a week, a month? Do, do you ever invite somebody else to hear your confession, so to speak, so they can pray for you, have your back in prayer? Oh, you're missing out on the cleansing prayer if you don't do that. 
One final sort of prayer, the retrieving prayer. Go to the closing couple of verses. Here we go. Drum roll, please. We're about to finish the epistle of James, verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, have you heard that before from James? His favorite address of his readers, fellow Christ followers. Brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Wow. I've got a, a, a dog who's a mutt. She, she's like, I don't even know how many different uh, varieties of breed there are in her. I know she's got a little black lab, a little bit of chow, and God knows what else. But what I love about my mutt who I got at a rescue shelter is that she retrieves. You throw a ball and she brings it back. Now, that may not sound too astounding to you, but my last dog was a purebred yellow lab that I, I paid a lot of money for, and she would never retrieve anything. Okay? And I, I read the books. I went to the obedience classes. I tried the treats. I tried everything. But I'd throw a ball, and she'd look up at me like, you know, you threw it. You get it. Yeah, I'm so... Never retrieved it. Some Christ followers are like that. They just don't think it's their responsibility to retrieve anybody who's wandered from God. That's not my job. James would beg to differ. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, circle the word someone. James is specifically generic here. He said, it could be anybody. It doesn't need to be your pastor if you see somebody who's wandered away from God, go get them. Okay, can I get something off my chest here? Okay, this is the participative part. Can, can I get something off my chest here? Okay, one of the things that really bugs me as a pastor, there are a few. I'll tell you the rest some other time. One of the things that, that bothers me is when I'm called upon to intervene in a situation to retrieve someone, so to speak, who's doing something self-destructive or messing up their marriage or you know, creating problems here at the church. One of the things that troubles me is, is when I realize I'm talking to someone who's surrounded by Christian friends. they got a Christian family, they're in a community group, and they've never heard what I'm about to say to them. And I want to say, where are these other people in your life? Okay, why haven't they been getting in your face? You know, we pride ourselves on caring for each other. But we're not willing to say the hard thing. Let me give you three resources in this regard. The first resource is prayer. Now, ironically, James comes to the end of this passage that's all about prayer, and he doesn't mention prayer in the closing two verses. But because of the context, you could be sure that James assumes if you're going after someone who's wandered from God, you're going to be prayed up. I mean, do not try this without having prayed for this person first. Otherwise, you're just going to be venting. You're going to be working you know, in your own strength and power. That, that'll, never, that'll never do, right? You're going to be addressing someone who's not going to be welcoming you with open arms necessarily. You better pray. So prayer, it starts with prayer. Second resource I would recommend is God's Word. Look at verse 19. Please note in verse 19 that James describes the wandering person as having strayed from what? From the truth. Now, friends, this is a really important point to make. Follow me here. We live in a culture that no longer believes in the truth. 
We, we live in a culture that doesn't believe there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. So our culture feels it would be in bad taste. It would be intolerant. Okay, that's the watchword of the day. It would be intolerant to suggest that a person has wandered from God and is in need of being retrieved. How dare you think that? You following this? So if your friend is drinking too much, or she's sleeping with her boyfriend, or he's spending himself into debt, you know, whatever, you're not allowed to think in terms of retrieving that person. Who are you to think that something is wrong in their behavior and that you somehow know what's right? That's our culture speaking. Well, if you're familiar with God's Word, the fact is you can identify wrong behavior, not based on your opinions, but on what God's Word says. You do know what's right. James was certainly not timid when it came to getting in people's faces. As I was studying this passage this week, I I read, interestingly, there are more imperative verbs, more commands per word in James' epistle than in any other book of the New Testament. This is a guy who was not afraid to get in your face and say, you got to get right with God. You know, you got to stop doing this, or you got to start doing that. And if you say, well, so he just comes out guns a-blazing all the time? No, that leads us to our third resource, love. Remember how he opens these closing two verses. Brothers and sisters, this guy's a lover. Hey, love you guys. Got to say something hard here, but I want you to know it's motivated out of love. This is not a guy who's venting for the sake of venting. This is not a guy who's doing it for one-upmanship to show that he's right and you're wrong. This is a guy who loves you, and the goal of his retrieving is what? It's to save you from, look at the end of verse 20, from death. Now, he's probably not talking physical death here, although sometimes you're going to go after someone and save them literally, literally from physical death. You know anybody who's drinking themselves to death these days? You might save them from literal death to get involved. But James probably has an on here spiritual death. If this person is an unbeliever, this is going to be eternal spiritual death, separation from God, because they've never been forgiven through faith in Christ. If it's someone who claims to be a believer, They may still be headed toward eternal death because their faith may not be genuine as proved by the fact that they're persisting in their sin and don't really care what God thinks. But even if they're a believer, a bona fide follower of Jesus, and they've just momentarily wandered from the path, James is suggesting there's a spiritual deadening that's taking place in their relationship with God, and you could save them from that. Don't you want to do that? Don't you want to bring them back? And besides that, James says, the closing line, and you'll cover over a multitude of sins. He's not talking about your sins as a prayer. Hey, if you do this, God will give you brownie points, forgive some of your sins. He's talking about the sins of the other person. You confront that individual lovingly with God's word, and they say, oh, yeah, I need to come back to God. And they confess their sins, and the blood of Jesus Christ covers them. They're forgiven. It's a wonderful experience. Does it work all the time? Well, I've found sometimes it just riles people up to do this. But I've also found doing nothing doesn't bring them back to God either. And there have been some wonderful times when getting in somebody's face brings them back to God. There's no greater joy. 
So which of the four kinds of prayer do you need work on? Is it the singing prayer? You know, guys, do you need to learn how to break loose and sing God's praise and just, you know, just try. Just be bold. Croak out of lyrics of a praise song a little more boldly. Is it the healing prayer? Because there have been times when you've been sick and it didn't even occur to you to go to the elders of the church and say, I need your prayer. Is it the cleansing prayer? There's stuff going on in your life that never gets confessed. And you just need to make a practice of becoming a person who confesses sin and shares it with somebody else who can have your back in prayer. Or is it the retrieving prayer? Right now, if I stopped and said, write down the name of somebody who's wandered from God, probably everybody in this auditorium across our four campuses could probably bring someone to mind. Who's going to go after that person? You need to start praying for them right now. 